As the director of the current production of A View from the Bridge, today's guest marks his return to Broadway after a 17-year hiatus. Before that time, he was the artistic director of two of the country's major institutional theaters, the Goodman in Chicago and Lincoln Center Theater here in New York. And he played a key role in the career of one of America's great playwrights, David Mamet. For the past five years, he has led the Columbia University Arts Initiative, a unique effort to link the educational and creative communities on the Columbia campus. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I am very pleased to meet Gregory Mosher. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, I started to ask you before we began taping uh, about the prior revivals of View from the Bridge, and you said you had not seen them. The only production I've seen was when I was at Juilliard, and with no offense to my classmates, I I don't remember much about it. So why to return to Broadway? I mean, it sounds perhaps more epic than, than it need to, but why this play now? I knew I wanted to come direct a play on Broadway. That's already a very narrow subset of the world's drama. As you know, I had worked with Miller at Lincoln Center Theater. I've always been fascinated by this play, which is, I suppose, why I never saw another production of it. It always scared me, this play. It was mysterious, this play, for the same reason it's scary and mysterious to audiences, I think. It's sexual and dark and this strange combination of classic form and outrageous emotion. Um... And I've done every play in my life on a hunch, every single play I've done on a hunch, unless it was David's new play. Mm-hmm. And then I just did it because it was David's new play. And so there's no scientific reason for it. I just wanted to do this play, as dopey as that sounds. If the press is accurate, you initiated the production. I did. So first was you knew you wanted to do the play. Did you go to a producer next? Did you start thinking about casting next? What was the process? I cast it next. I went to Liev Schreiber, who said probably. I went to Scarlett Johansson, who said probably. And then the three of us started a series of conversations, sometimes all three of us, often just two of us, including the two of them talking to each other. And by the end of the summer, we had a production. At which point I went to Stuart Thompson and asked if he'd like to do it together. Hmm. And I'm very pleased he said yes. Because that's certainly not how most plays get to Broadway. Essentially to have it packaged and then go to a producer – and I use package only in the general sense. But to go to a producer and say, well, look, I've got the play. I think I've got these people. Do you want to produce it? Yeah. Well, there's some things you don't want to negotiate over. You know, if a camel is a – horse designed by a committee, you don't want a cast that's the result of negotiations. You want the cast you want. Hmm. And I knew that Stuart would trust me to cast the rest of the play, and I was very happy to turn to him for advice as we got to Beatrice and Alfieri and the rest of the actors, and I consulted with Stuart Daly. But I didn't want to argue about who was going to play Eddie. It was either you liked the idea of Liev as Eddie and you liked Scarlett, or you didn't. I didn't want to go interview 27 young actresses. Hmm. So the only way to do it was to say, here's Scarlett, here's Liv, here's the play. You're stuck with me directing. You want to do it. Well, 
it's an extraordinary package. I mean, that it would be hard to argue with, and I would imagine had you gone to most anyone, they would have said, yes, they wanted to do it. I have to ask you, because so many people talk about this issue of movie stars coming to Broadway. Scarlett had done some stage work when she was very young. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you fix upon the idea of her for this role? Well, Catherine is 17 years old in the play. I don't know if there's a 17-year-old who could play it, so you were probably going to have an actress in her young 20s. So experience just wasn't a factor. It just wasn't. It was for Eddie, of course, or Alfieri, or the boys even, Rodolfo and Marco. So experience didn't matter. Talent mattered and willpower mattered and, above all, courage mattered. And I was a big fan of Scarlett's. I like most people who have seen her movies, Lost in Translations and, and Translation, and the one she did with Woody Allen and many others. And she's just great. She has a voice, you know? She has a voice. And that's for starters. If she had had a squeaky little voice, I wouldn't have cared how good her acting was. Mm-hmm. In terms of the conversations that you said you had, at any point did you did you read Liev and Scarlet together or was it really just about talking about the play? Only after I had asked them each if they'd like to do it. And then the three of us got together in Liev's – we sat around his kitchen table actually. Hmm. And, and isn't he out in Brooklyn somewhere? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, um, he's downtown. OK. And, um, and that was really interesting and great and the play sort of opened up for them a little bit. And it was only 45 minutes or an hour. Hmm. And I, you'll have to ask Carla, but I think she thought, oh, I could do this. And not only could I do it, it would be something that Liev and I and Gregory and the rest of the cast would create together. I think she sort of thought we would just – because people don't redo movies usually and if they do, it usually doesn't go well. Um, some version of an earlier production. And I think that was the day that it occurred to her for the first time that we would simply take the words on the page and create a production with the people who were in this cast. Hmm. And that was a big light bulb going off for her. Oh, you can do this five different ways. Even in 20 minutes, you can play this little four-minute scene five different ways. This might be fun. She's an extraordinarily brave person, you know. Hmm. Um brave about her career, brave about her work, brave about her choices as an actor, um, and of course career choices. She's fearless really Hmm. and that was thrilling for all of us and she didn't need coddling. Hmm. You said that the play has, you know, it's darkness, it's scary. For you, were you trying to solve the play because for some people it can be a little obscure about – What's the exact intention of everyone or was it just about finding your way your way through? It was about finding our way through. I don't think we ever thought it was obscure. Mm-hmm. And we always knew where we were headed and the story Miller was trying to tell. The question was always how best to tell it. I said to the cast on the first day of rehearsal that I didn't have a concept and that we would discover the play together in rehearsal. And this provoked uh, exhilaration and terror simultaneously on 14 faces. But I think it's the only way you can do it. Hmm. One of the things – perhaps my question was too obscure, but 
there's always the question of balance of has Beatrice driven Eddie away? Has Eddie driven Beatrice away? How sexualized is Catherine? How knowing is she? Were those all discoveries that you made with the actors? Absolutely. We knew going in that Eddie had to trust in his ability to love Catherine, that he had to be able to embrace her, to kiss her, to hold her, to have her sit in his lap, and in no way feel that that was strange or wrong, that it in fact was loving. He loves Catherine, and Catherine loves him. So that was the starting point. We knew that the the whole thing would collapse if Eddie had any sense of what he was doing was wrong. Hmm. He had to believe that his love was pure and parental or avuncular, technically. Um, Catherine gradually figures it out that there's a problem. Beatrice knows from the beginning, which is why Beatrice is, in a way, the central dramatic character of the play. She's trying to dole out dangerous information from the very beginning of the play. Go let her take that job. Let her, you never let her grow up. You have to let her grow up. You have to let her out of the house. And Eddie is quite sincere when he says, I wanted something better for her. What, she's going to go work in the docks? What a terrible idea. I killed myself so that she could become a secretary and meet a better class of people, I think is the line. Hmm. You could say, well, he's making that up because he wants to keep her around, but why would you say that? It is why he put her through secretarial school. It's the immigrant's dream, isn't it? That your child—it's the American dream—that your child will have a better life. He would raise his hand to God and say, "That's what he wants, and that's the problem with this job." But he looks at her, and she's crushed that he won't approve the job, and he says, "Okay, go to work." And that's the point when she in this production, and it was Liev's idea. She rushes into his arms as he's sitting at the dinner table. And he gives her a long hug and says, why are you crying? Hmm. And the audience picks – and she says, I don't know. So he thinks he's given her a fatherly hug. She's troubled. Jessica Hecht, God bless her, is just smiling at this scene. And the audience goes, oh, trouble right here in River City. Hmm. And we're eight minutes into the play. Given that the play was written – 50-odd years ago, do you think Do you think the audience responds to the play now differently than they might have when Miller first wrote it? I'm sure they do. I'm sure that the political implications, the House on American Committee, the idea of informing was bigger in 1955. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suspect the power of the play has always been its sexuality, our ability to deceive ourselves, our loss of identity, our loss of respect in the community and ultimately self-respect. Those are pretty universal themes and they're the power of the play. But also the sexual aspects of the play are dealt with – Carefully by Miller because there was what you could or couldn't portray and obviously as you say, it wasn't – the feelings weren't explicit. Do you think – do you think people see the tragedy coming sooner today than they might have back then Be- when, because there's so much tabloid coverage of 
you know, this improper relationship or, you know, this family having its issues. I mean, these are people who would now, you know, go on Jerry Springer. <laughs> I suppose I, I've never – and I've been doing this for a long time. I have never heard an audience quieter than the audience in the court theater. Hmm. They essentially – and I don't know if this happened the night you were there. But they essentially don't breathe for 98 minutes of playing time. Hmm. And that's because they want to know what's going to happen next and because they're scared of what's happening on stage. And several people have said and several critics have said, you want to rush up on stage and warn these people that something terrible is going to happen. And I think that sense is exacerbated because Eddie and Catherine – don't know the tragic route they're going down, as Alfieri, the narrator lawyer, says, the bloody course of the play. And because Beatrice is so helpless to stop it. Everyone's helpless, but only one of the characters sees it. Hmm. Since you use the word tragedy, in a tragedy, it's usually the key character, Eddie, has a, a, a flaw a single flaw, and you've said he doesn't see. Is that his flaw, that he doesn't see or that he believes everything he is doing is pure? Yes, it's that he can't face his demons. And I, you know, we talk about tragic flaw in college. It's not that simple, but it's sort of simple. Um, And sure, you know, there's a moment when he's with Alfieri, the lawyer who is a Miller so cleverly made a lawyer rather than a priest. But Eddie comes almost, almost to confess. Subconsciously, he wants to confess because he would be horrified at, at the idea of having lustful feelings for his niece even though she's not a blood relation. And at the very end when Alfieri – of the first scene when Alfieri has explained that he has no legal case against this boy who Catherine's fallen in love with, he turns back and Miller's written a great line, I'm dot, dot, dot. I'm – well, I'll see you. And the play tilts in that moment because that would be the moment to say, I'm worried. Or I'm ashamed. And he can't do it. He just can't do it. And because he can't do it, like all tragedies, he takes the only inevitable next step. And that makes things worse. And then the inevitable step leads to another inevitable step, which makes things worse. Um, and that's the tragic structure of the play. His, his choices are circumscribed by his own behavior. But his behavior is always just as Oedipus is trying to save Thebes. Eddie is trying to save his family. He's trying to save that girl. And by trying to save her, he destroys her and -hmm. destroys himself. Well, let's talk more about Gregory Mosher. Um, You're from New York? I was born in New York, adopted and raised in Ithaca. And was there a lot of theater in Ithaca as you were growing up? Um. No, I I remember – no. I suppose I acted in the odd high school play. I wanted to be a musician. I read Waiting for Godot when I was 17 or something and thought Samuel Beckett had been reading my mail. I just thought, well, that's just exactly the way the world is. 
hmm, exactly the way the world is. Um, I still wanted to be a conductor. I went to Oberlin. I realized I didn't have enough musical talent to pursue it professionally and decided I would see if I had any skill as a director. Hmm. I had been sort of conducting. I mean, I say conducting. I was really just waving my arms while the musicians played in high school. And, um, and I started directing. And I knew nothing. I knew nothing about dramatic literature. And I read 120 plays between my freshman and sophomore year in college. So did you do the full four years at Oberlin? No, or I dropped out after two, and then I went back to Ithaca, and a week before my junior year, I realized I didn't want to go back, but I had to keep dodging the drift. So I enrolled at Ithaca College, which was, you know, it was fine. I went to some classes. I mostly played <laughs> in my rock and roll band <laughs> and had fun. What did you play? The drums, of course. <laughs> so how did you find your way to Juilliard? Which did not have a directing program at the time. It didn't. Well, Carnegie Tech didn't want me and Yale didn't want me. And I didn't know what to do. I was just a confused kid. And somebody said, there's a program at Juilliard. And I patiently explained that was a music program. And this professor said, well, no, you idiot. There's actually a drama program run by John Hausman. And I went down and I auditioned for Marion Seldes and John Hausman himself. Hmm. A vivid day in my life. And uh, they must have known how terrible I was. But they said, so you want to be a director, right? And I said, well, you have to take these acting classes and we'll try to think of something for you. And that's what they did. They were very generous. So you were, as, as some material says, the first directing student at the Juilliard School. But they created it out of the acting program for you? Well, what they let me do was occasionally skip a class and go off to a dress rehearsal on Broadway or in Brooklyn or something. And um, they sort of encouraged me to do extracurricular projects. Truly, it's a conservatory. You know, you're in at 8.30 in the morning and you're out at 10 o'clock at night. So I would convince friends to stick around and rehearse for another two hours at night and bribe the janitors with – Ripple, bottles of Ripple, <laughs> and uh, and leave at midnight and go back at it the next day. It's interesting. I don't know how many directors have been necessarily really had a conservatory training as an actor knowing they don't want to be an actor. So what what was that experience of going through those classes knowing you were really headed in another direction? Well, when I want to, I can have very good Julia diction. Um, <laughs> um, look, all you got – I mean, what's the theater? It's writing and acting. You could take the director out of the picture and still have a play. You can perform on a bare stage and still have a play. There's only writing and acting. So I studied the writing on my own and I got some basic understanding of what it is an actor goes through in those two and a half years before I dropped out. Hmm. So that's it. I, I can't really write and I certainly can't act. So, But it was useful because that's what you got, writing and mm. acting. So you dropped out of Juilliard. I dropped out of Juilliard, yeah. So two and a half years, at that point, three-year program, four-year program? It was a four-year program. I, okay. I had re-enrolled as, an, as a freshman in a BFA program. Okay. So you you'd had your you were done with school. I was you'd, done you'd with it. school, and my class fell apart, and it's boring. But um, and John Husband was distracted by doing the paper chase, and 
I said I was leaving, and they said, you'll never work. And I said, well, I'll take my chances. So where'd you go? I went around to all seven or eight of the not-for-profit theaters in New York City. Playwrights Horizons had just started. Lynn had just started. Manhattan Theater Club. I offered – I tried to get a job. They said no. I said I'll work for free. They said no. I went and visited Alan Schneider, who was extraordinarily gracious um, down at the um, um, arena stage. I had a little – I had a bunch of three-by-five cards. I think there were about 17 of them. And then I got to my 17th person and I didn't have a job. But Bill Woodman, a professor of mine uh, at the Juliet School, had just gone to the Goodman. And um, I called him and asked if he needed some help. So you went to the Goodman in fall of 74. Fall of 74. And what specifically was your job? I had five, the Goodman, as you know, Chicago had about five theaters at the time. The Goodman, a dinner theater, and Stuart Gordon had just brought his organic theater company down from Madison. Uh, the Steppenwolf kids were still kids. They were in junior high school or high school. Um, Mammoth had just maybe barely brought back the St. Nicholas Company from Goddard College in Vermont. And I had five jobs for Bill. I was uh, the casting director. I was the literary manager. I was his executive assistant. I was the assistant director for all the main stage shows. And I was the, quote, coordinator of Stage 2, a program funded by the Illinois Council on the Arts. We had $13,500 to do a four-play season. Wow. Yet... Now, it the, seemed like a lot of money well, at the time. What what I'm curious about is the Goodman, I think it was one of the oldest 19, of 1925. The, the theaters, yet it seems, I mean, if Bill brought you in with all these things, is it because the theater didn't have the resources to cover all of this or Bill just thought you could do all these things? Oh, he couldn't have had any idea of whether I could have done them. There was no money. <laughs> there was no money and uh, – You know, Bill deserves a tremendous amount of credit for the resurgence of the Goodman Theater and I have gotten far too much of that credit. It's – it's – he brought Edward Bond's play to that theater. He did an American premiere of Brian Friel's play. God help me. I can't remember which one and brought it to Broadway and there were the stirrings of life and to create a second stage was something that American not-for-profit theaters were doing in the early 70s. For mixed reasons, they were finding out they couldn't do the best and most interesting work, certainly the most adventurous work on the main stage. So within a decade, they had all created second stages. Bill was great friends with Gordon Davidson, who was running the Mark Taper Forum at the time. Gordon had just started a second stage, and it's what one did when started a second stage. Hmm. Bill was very generous. You know, he could have directed American Buffalo when Mammoth brought it to the Goodman. Hmm. He didn't have to say, Gregory, why don't you direct American Buffalo? Hmm. And I will forever be grateful to him. May he rest in peace. So that first season that you had to produce with $13,500, what did you produce? Uh, Frank Galati, who was then a professor at Northwestern, had a play called Winnebago about a family traveling in a Winnebago van to Disneyland. I was so – Naive. I just thought we could take a picture of Mickey Mouse and put it on the poster. 
Oh, that's never good. <laughs> yeah, well, Disney called within days. and um, But it didn't matter because we only had one poster. So it was easy <laughs> hanging in the lobby, which I had made myself with glue. So we took that down. Um, and and then this play, The Sun, by Gert Hoffman, translated by John Swan. And, boy, you probably know the others. I, oh, and then we ended the season, I think, with three women. A play that was originally supposed to be seven women about the experiences of <laughs> and you went to the author and said we can't afford well, seven. Well, it was a collaborative project. <laughs> a guy named oh god, what's Sissel's name? Forgive me. Um, um, had this idea to do a play about women's issues, which was interesting in the spring of 1975, and they created I don't know 15, 20 characters. And I said, dude, we got room. Would you mind changing it to three women? And he said, fine. And huh. it ran forever and ever and ever. It was big success. Well, small cast. Keep and it that, running longer. Yeah. And that got us into the second season. And the second season began with American Buffalo. So at that point, just, just to understand, you'd said Mamet had come down and brought the St. Nicholas Company. Um, sexual perversity had been done. Yes, in the spring of 74, I think, directed by Stuart Gordon. Why, do you know why he came to the Goodman and didn't necessarily go back to Stuart Gordon with that play? I don't. I mean, he was and is very friendly with Stuart and hmm. deeply respectful. And Stuart's production was great, screamingly funny mm-hmm. and very, very moving. Um, those poor lost boys. Um so I don't know. He just walked. I mean, it was a new game in town. And you were a new game in town because you had actually directed a great deal at the point at which Bill handed you this play in terms of Yes, I, I suppose American Buffalo was my second play, yes. That's pretty extraordinary. Well, it's just lucky is what it is. I didn't do anything to deserve to direct that play. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to guess that David had shown it to many, many theaters in America. He must... I've never asked him, but he must have shown it to Joe Papp. He must have shown it around. He must have shown it to every Broadway theater whose office he could get it into. Hmm. So, casting that first production. Chicago, of course, is noted now for the depth and vitality of its acting community. Was it the same case back then where you had so many choices from people in Chicago? Well, I'm not sure we were, as the Brits say, spoiled for choice. Mm -hmm. But um, Dave said, look, I know the two guys who should play Donnie and Bobby, and that's Bill Macy to play the kid, and a guy I know from doing children's theater, J.J. Johnston. And it's no secret that many of the great actors in Chicago are either ex-cops or ex-cons. Um, uh, Jay was the latter. And the play is dedicated to him. J.J. Johnston is the only man I, whom Mamet ever let rewrite his words. Hmm. And, and then incorporated them into the text. It's not that J.J. was improvising them, but he would missay a line sometimes. Hmm. And, and Dave would burst out laughing and say, Jay, can I have that? And Jay would say, yeah, what'd they say? Hmm. And uh, he would take it. I mean, he's a poet, J.J. He really is, and a great actor and a great man. Hmm. And so then it was just a question of finding somebody to play teach. And as you may know, 
because I wrote it in the forward to the published version. A guy came in at 10 o'clock in the morning covered in blood. I mean, just covered in blood. And I said, are you okay? And he said, let's just do the bleeping audition. And so we cast him and we played for 12 performances and then moved to another venue and he was no longer in it. And Mike Nussbaum, who was at that time doing dinner theater. Are you purposely avoiding saying who he was who was covered in blood? <laughs> well, it's a matter of record and he's no longer with us. It was mm. a very, very good actor named Bernard Earhart. Mm. Um, and, and, and Mike stepped in. Mike had had a career, great, great Chicago actor, Mike Nussbaum, sure. great American actor. Um, had had a career as an exterminator. I mean, he would he would, and I don't mean in the movie sense. I mean, he would come and get rid of your bugs. Huh. And then he decided he wanted to have a career as an actor. I suppose sometime in his late thirties, and he went out and worked in Bill Polinsky's Candlelight Dinner Playhouse, which is where I saw him the first time. Hmm. But he, Mike also was, you know, he he was on to the whole nascent neighborhood theater scene, and he was a part of that too. Hmm. When did you become the artistic director and what was that process? Bill decided he wanted to go back to New York. Uh, Chicago was not on the map at that point still. Uh, Yale Theater Magazine in the mid-70s put out an article on on theater in America and did not have a chapter on Chicago. Hmm. Didn't have a paragraph on Chicago. I mean, there was no theater in Chicago wow. as far as the Yale Theater Magazine was concerned in 1975 or 1976, which is crazy. So I, the board may have asked if anybody else wanted to run the theater and, after Bell's departure. But if they did, nobody wanted the job. Hmm. So there I was, 27 or 28 or whatever I was, and I was suddenly the director of the theater. Hmm. Now, we talked about American Buffalo. During your tenure, you had the opportunity to continue to work with David Mamet. He was almost the house playwright. He was. So so it was just natural that each show he wrote came to the good men and came to you. Yeah, I only said no once to David. I think after Buffalo, he, he showed me the water engine, which, as you know, has about 18 people in it. I wasn't scared by the 18 people, but I didn't get it. Hmm. I, I said, David, I don't get it. And he said, well, then don't do it. That's, that's not a big problem. And he took it to his own theater company, the um, St. Nicholas. And Stephen Schachter directed Bill Macy as the central character in The Water Engine in one of the most beautiful productions I have ever seen in the theater. And I sat there watching it and thought, don't ever say no again. Just say yes. When there's a new place, say yes. Mm-hmm. So what else were you saying yes to during your tenure there? <laughs> I was looking. I cannot tell you how ignorant I was. Um, and and so I was in the drama bookstore two versions ago when it was upstairs on 7th Avenue, remember? That's where second the, floor, sure. Where the hotel is now. And I saw a play called Death and the King's Horseman. That's what it said on the spine. Bolesenka. Exactly. So I thought, well, I never heard of him. So, But I bought the play based on the title and flipped out in, with happiness and uh, spent a year trying to get Shoyanka to, to respond in any way. And one day this man who 10 years later would win the Nobel Prize for Literature walked in my office and said, Wally Shoyanka, I hear you want to do my play. 
and we did it and it transferred to the Kennedy Center and I did it again later. And I was just taking steps. At the, you see, nobody would give the Goodman their play. So Gordon got first shot or Zelda got first shot at the arena or – the Long Wharf. I mean, the elite twelve theaters. The original twelve. The probably. original the first 12. Lord theaters. And and those guys seemed men and women seemed old to me, but they were in their forties. I was just in my twenties, so I would call the agents and say, "What are, what are we chopped liver out here?" Hmm. And and they would usually say yes. And every now and then, someone would patiently explain that if the ten major theaters pass on the play, Terra Nova. I was. Desperate to do Ted Talley's play Terra Nova, and I couldn't get it. I just couldn't get it. So you had to look elsewhere, and one of the places you looked was, of course, Chicago writers or international writers. I think the Goodman did the first production of Fugard, Connie, and Winston and Shauna's Sisuebanzi is dead. Hmm. I don't think it had occurred to anybody that actors aside from John and Winston could do it because it was it came out of improvisation hmm. which Fugard then shaped i think the agent was flabbergasted when i asked if we could do the rights to acquire the rights and do the production and we did uh, Lonnie Smith and Meshach Taylor did it and it won the Jefferson Award that year for Best Play and Meshach won for Best Director and I won the Jefferson Award, the Chicago Local Theater Award um, for Best Director, directing a two-character play. I mean, it was just crazy but it was because I couldn't get Terra Nova. Uh-huh. And how much were you looking for plays for yourself to direct or simply for plays for the theater? Plays for the theater, always, always plays for the theater. Um, you know, when you're, when you're the director of the theater, you only have time to do – I mean, if you're Trevor Nunn, you can do more. But I only had enough intelligence and energy to do two maybe. And David usually had a new play and there was something else. And so, With David's plays, many of them were subsequently seen in New York. Were you getting the opportunity to go with them each time? No. No, I wasn't. Um, I remember meeting with uh, David saying to Joe Papp, I'd really like this guy, Gregor Moser, to direct the play. And I met with Joe. And it, it was just so clear within 30 seconds that Joe was never going to hire me to direct the uh-huh. play. But that was OK. I, I, it didn't matter really to me so much. Hmm. So when – well, were you approached or did you pursue the Lincoln Center position when Lincoln Center Theater began – the, the revitalized operation of the Vivian Beaumont in 85? I was approached via – after – I remember this vividly. I was coming out of Orso with Sam Cohn and Mike Nichols and as we were saying goodnight on the street and it was still light, I remember, Mike or Sam said, you know, they want to talk to you about this Lincoln Center job. And I could sort of see why maybe in a moment of insanity that might be the case. Hurley Burley, which the Goodman had produced and Mike had directed, was playing on Broadway. Glenn Gary had just won the Pulitzer Prize, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I burst out laughing. It was crazy. Aaliyah Kazan had run that theater. Joe Papp had run that theater. Both of them, God bless them, had failed. Um, And they're far greater men than I am. And I thought it was crazy. But then I met John Lindsay and was happy for a while to paraphrase Mr. O'Neill. I mean, John's a 
deeply captivating was um, a very, very amazing man and with a love of theater in his DNA. And he had a great personal risk really taken on the leadership of what was always referred to as the troubled Beaumont. Well, indeed. I mean it was believed to be an unworkable theater, which I never understood. Um, were there – did you think there were inherent problems with that space? Oh, I didn't think there were any problems with the Beaumont space because I had seen Peter Brook's production of Carmen, which took an 1,100-seat theater and made it look intimate. And to skip ahead in this narrative, when I finally did take the job at Lincoln Center eight or nine months later, the first thing I did was fly to Paris and ask Peter to explain how Carmen had worked in the theater. Hmm. I knew in general terms because I had seen it several times. And he went to his technical director, designer, Jean-Guy Leca, and Jean-Guy dug out the plans, gave them to me. I took them home and for seven years dug out Jean Leca's <coughs> ground plan for Carmen and said to the designers, I don't care if it's a boat or an apartment, that's the ground plan. I mean hmm. that's the bit of real estate that makes this theater come alive. You'll be tempted to play eight feet further upstage because the quote-unquote sight lines are better. The trick is you have to march boldly out into the audience. And that's what Brooke had taught me. Hmm. And it's what I explained to Andre when I passed the leadership of the theater over to him in 1992. Well, let's not, let's not pass it off too quickly. Um, you had said that part of your experience at the Goodman was you could only get the plays that uh, the, the the big ten regional theaters and presumably the major New York theaters could not get. What was your access to material once you had this particular real estate at, at hand? There was no problem getting material all of a sudden. <laughs> the, the, the problem was we were in a, we were in a catch-22 – of having only, I don't know, $600,000 or something in the bank, which sounds like a lot of money, but it wasn't enough to buy paper clips and do more than one play. And you couldn't raise any money unless you did a play. So one night at 2.30 in the morning, Bernie Gersten was on board by then. John Lindsay, Bernie, my memory is, is that Skylar Chapin was there. We had not been able to solve this problem of how do you get enough money to have a first season. Hmm. And I said, let's just do one play because otherwise we'll still be sitting here for f another year. Mm -hmm. and, and then you'll be back to Richmond Crinkley, <laughs> who was the director of that theater. Wonderful man, Richard at Richmond. And God knows he tried and tried to make the place work. But – you know, what do they say in politics? The, the, the perfect is the enemy of the possible. So we just started with a play. And what was the first play since it obviously had a lot riding on it? Uh, two one act by David and they were panned. Uh, my, I don't say this sarcastically. My dear friend John Simon said, I've heard of ending with a whimper, not a bang. Whoever heard of beginning with one? Hmm. And I called John the day after the plays opened and I said, see, I told you I was probably going to screw this up. And he said, don't be ridiculous. You said you needed three years. What's next? And I said, well, what's next is, I don't know, it's this John Guare play that has just been sitting on a shelf for 20 years called The House of Blue Leaves. I don't know. I think it will work. Hmm. And it ran for two years. 
and primed the pump. What also primed the pump, and I, I must say this, is, is a group of very, very generous um, board members at Lincoln Center Theater, extremely dedicated, and who, when they had no concrete reason to do it, and really had many reasons not to do it, um, if memory serves, six of them put up a quarter of a million dollars, which is a lot of money in 19 a lot of money now, but it's really a lot of money in 1985, um, um, to float the theater through its second production. Mm-hmm. One of the things that has occurred from time to time, both during your tenure and subsequently in Andre's, is you get a show that's such a hit that if it's been built for the relatively unique space of the Beaumont, you sort of need to keep it there. It's you, not, it's, you can keep it or you can move it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the House of Blue Leaf started in the 300-seat Mitzi Newhouse Theater, moved upstairs to the 1,100-seat Beaumont, and then moved, I think, to the Plymouth. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, Proscenium Theater and played very happily there for another nine months. Mm-hmm. Um, I think now the expense of moving South Pacific, say, uh, to to a Broadway theater probably would not have been wise. Right, and the Anything Goes stayed in the Beaumont for a long time. Anything Goes did stay in the Beaumont. We started producing in Broadway theaters, though, almost immediately so that we had enough action. And, again, you spoke very early about the, the need for a stage, too the balance between the Beaumont and the Mitzi and how you decided what belonged where, since obviously has to be... I never thought of the Mitzi as stage two, and in fact, it was part of the mission statement I wrote for for Lincoln Center. Um, Some plays play better in smaller... You wouldn't want to do, let's just take a masterpiece, you wouldn't want to do Crap's Last Tape in an 1,100-seat theater, but you might want to do Crap's Last Tape. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, it seemed that you didn't want to do Spalding Gray, who I asked to come uptown in whatever year, 77. Um, and Spalding eventually was able to fill the Beaumont, not just in terms of tickets sold, but size. But it would have seemed insane to do that. But I never thought the material in the Beaumont was more important than the material in the Mitzi, or that one was experimental and one wasn't. I thought everything was an experiment. <clears throat> of all of the shows that you did at Lincoln Center Theater during your tenure, are there is there a particular favorite, or are there particular favorites that of which you're most proud? Well, you know, they're like children, and you love them all. But the shocker, of course, was Serafina. Um, we had done um, uh, very early on uh, a festival of South African drama, and a remarkable artist named Bongini and Gema had created a play called Asina Mali that I saw in rehearsal in Harlem. And Brooke had, Peter Brooke had just seen, and and we were saying, this guy's a genius, right? This guy's just a complete genius. Uh, bare stage, five actors. And I called Bongani, I mean, I spoke to him in my office and said, whatever you want to do next, we'll do next. And he said, great, it's called Serafina. I said, we'll do it. He said, no, no, it's got 45 people. I said, we'll do it. He said, the leading role is 17-year-old girl. I said, we'll do it. He said, I need to rehearse it for a year. And I said, we'll do it. Wow. And we did it, and it played 13 weeks in the Mitzi, and um, we moved to the court Hmm. where the Miller play is now. And it ended up playing for seven years, not in the court, but a national and international tour. Wow. Kids from South Africa. 
I mean, it was great. It was really, 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 really good. And it was playing at the same time as um, Anything Goes. I have read, of course, that you made the decision after only six or seven years to depart from Lincoln Center saying you were exhausted. Um, Certainly the job of being an artistic director and you'd done it first at the Goodman and then really went directly to Lincoln Center Theater is pretty all-encompassing and tiring and all of that. When you left, did you have particular ideas of what you wanted to do next or was it just you needed the break? I I didn't know what I was going to do next. But to understand the leaving, you sort of have to go back to, to the starting a little bit. You asked if the space was the problem. The space wasn't the problem. The relationship between the artists and the audience in the widest sense was the problem. I knew that the Lincoln Center Theater could not survive as a five-place subscription season. It just couldn't. You know, the joke in the not-for-profit theater, and we all make it, all of us who run these theaters, you run your flops and you close your hits. Um, I also know that we couldn't be locked into dates because when you're dealing with the level of artists who I knew that believed that we would attract to that theater, you couldn't say, well, the slot is March 17th to April 20th because if, you know, Lawrence Olivier rose from the grave and said, sorry, I'm only good starting on March 28th, we're going to say, I'm sorry, Larry, we're not doing the show because the the subscribe, you know, it's nuts. You're not serving, you would not be serving your audience in that situation. It's one of, it's really the only thing Bernie and I fought about in seven years. And it was a friendly and familial fight and I love him and I believe he loves me and that will never change. But he thought it was profoundly irresponsible, profoundly irresponsible to not have subscription income. I felt it was profoundly irresponsible to subject the writers, actors, directors, and designers to an audience that didn't really want to be there. The net result was fairly revolutionary, which was the idea of a membership, which then gave people – it was like buying a first option to buy tickets That's right. at a was, reduced rate. I mean, it, it was, was insanely cheap. It was – you could – membership was very simple. The card was like 10 bucks originally? It, it was $25 okay. a year. You okay. could join any day of the year. If the next 365 days you were a member, it sounds easy now. It took us six months to figure out. And during that time – any ticket cost you as a member $10. That's okay. It's that simple. We didn't promise you there would be a seat left if you waited until the last Saturday night. Right. But if we had a seat in the rack, we'd sell it to you for 10 bucks. Well, that turned out to be smart, and I thought everybody would copy it. But virtually no one has because it's too scary to give up. People all now call their subscribers members. But most New York theaters still ask you to buy three at a time. And anybody comes to the theater, I love. You know, God bless you for coming to the theater. But if you think about Danny Newman's subscription idea, it's basically to get people to buy plays they don't want to see in order to see the plays they do want to see, right? So you want to see two out of five, maybe three out of five. That means on any given night, 40% of your audience doesn't want to be there. 
Well, when I was at Hartford Stage, Mark Lamus used to say, if somebody likes all six plays I'm doing in a season, I'm doing something wrong. Well, exactly. But you were selling tickets to all six plays. Yeah. And I did it all those years. And so why are we surprised when they walk in and they're bored by the result? They didn't want to be there in the first place. So the real genius, I don't mean I'm a genius, the genius of the idea of membership was you didn't come unless you wanted to see it. If you thought anything goes was great, you came. If you thought it was middle brown nonsense, you didn't come. If you thought Mama was a new, brave new voice, you came. If you thought he was a foul-mouthed thug, you didn't. Just come to what you want to see. But it was a way of creating a community of audience. And that was a big deal. That was a really hmm. big deal. So having done that and having... Not on my own, obviously, but with a, a staff and a board and a remarkable group of artists made theatrical life – and we all together, above all the artists, showed that theatrical life was possible in that strangely formerly accursed space. I just felt I had done what I had been hired to do. I mean – so I said, well, I did it. You know, I – if, you know, some guy comes to fix your pipes and he fixes your pipes. You know, he's not supposed to stick around and wait until the pipes are broken. He goes off and does – or she goes off and does what's next. I just didn't know what was going to be next to circle back to your question. I had no idea. But then I didn't know what was in store at Lincoln Center and I mm -hmm. certainly didn't know what was in store when I went to Chicago. I didn't even know what a not-for-profit theater was when I turned up in Chicago. Four months after I worked got there, I said, do we make money or lose money? Hmm. It's interesting to me hearing you talk about this, that you made the choice to get involved in an effort to revitalize and sustain a producing organization at Circle in the Square in the mid-90s. Why you, you seemed to go quickly back into an institutional model. I was having dinner with some people I had never met before and we were talking about the theater. It was 1997 and um, a fellow called me the next day and he said, you know, Circle's about to close really. It just – it can't make it and it's New York's oldest not-for-profit theater. Would you come be an advisor or a consultant? And I said, sure. I had many of the greatest theatrical experiences in my life were in that theater. So I said, sure, and then I ended up being the director. We did one play with Stanley, Pam Jim's play Stanley. He introduced Tony Schur, now Sir Anthony Schur, um, um, to American audiences. And we had a great season lined up for the next year, Mary Zimmerman's first New York production, John Leguizamo's Freak, and the American premiere of any play by Martin McDonough, Beauty Queen of Lanann. Hmm. But we couldn't get through the summer. We couldn't get to the fall. Hmm. And all three of those plays, as you know, went on to become enormous successes. But I've had a lot of luck in my life and sometimes your luck, you know, you just – you don't draw the right cards. Hmm. So it's – and I – you know, it's a – I think we did everything we could. But what, it wasn't enough to save the theater. Hmm. As we inevitably do on this program, I have to skip along. Um, I want to talk about the Columbia Arts Initiative, yeah. uh, announced originally in 2004. Um, it was not that you were going to a university campus to start the next Yale Rep, the next American Repertory Theater. We have so many theater companies on campuses. It, it, it was a whole different idea that the new president of Columbia came to you about. Can you talk about 
Lee Bollinger, who had been at Columbia, I think, for two years at that point. Uh, and I ended up with very little introduction or preparation uh, in his office. And I knew he had some idea about the arts, and I asked what it was. And he said, well, it's, do you think the arts could be a part of everybody, every Colombian's life? I said I had no idea, but there was an interesting challenge, and if you'd like me to take it on, I would. And there was no model for this. Harvard wasn't doing it, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, University of Chicago. Nobody was doing it. So we talked to a lot of students and a lot of professors and asked what an arts program – this is not to be trained in the arts, but to make the arts a part of your life. So that's what we've been doing for five years. And after 20-some years of being focused on artists and the creative side, and above all, writers, on the creative side, I've spent five years thinking about where audiences are going to come from. I think that's the grave question. Um, you've seen the NEA reports. Attendance is down at every art form between 2002 and 2008, the years of the most recent surveys. Um, it's not because there aren't enough violinists or actors or ballet dancers. It's because there aren't enough audiences and the connection is disintegrating and the, the, the connection has been tenuous for 50 years. Um, so to throw the resources of a research university to deal with a lot of really bright kids, to invent programs that would test whether young people would go be audiences um, – was really interesting and we – first thing we did was get free admission to all the art museums in town simply by showing your student ID card. And they said, well, why? Why? We have a pay-what-you-can policy. And I said, yeah, and you have a very imposing guard who looks at you askance when you offer a dollar or a dime. Why would you treat a 19-year-old that way? Why wouldn't you greet that? young person with a smile and hope that he or she will come to your museum for the rest of his or her life and be, and 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 remember that they were greeted with smiles when they arrived, when it's donation time. You, you're going to get their data. You find out who they are if you want. Hmm. So how do you build audiences? We started a box office, the Ticket and Information Center, and it's the information part is you can ask any question about the arts. How do I audition for the Columbia Orchestra? My parents are coming to Carnegie Hall. Do I need to dress up when we go? Uh, what's a good date show? Eight of us want to go together. Can we sit together? Do theaters allow eight people to sit together? You have a concierge service. We have a concierge service. Exactly right. And we started ticketing uh, campus shows and New York City shows. And we – in two weeks, we'll sell our 200,000th ticket in two years hmm. of operation. Only five years in, yeah. on the one hand, it may seem like a long time for you. The full impact of this isn't going to be able to be tracked for a number of years. Is, is there a plan to be able to track the Columbia students of this generation? Obviously, an alumni office will know where they are. Will you be able to go 10 years out or 15, 20 years out and, and then go back? I hope so. One of the, the, the bright young staffers uh, at the Arts Initiative uh, a year into it said, why are we working with alumni? Why is this about students and faculty? And I didn't get it because I don't have any alumni allegiance. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and she said, no, no, the sense of being an alumnus or not is a very important thing in life and we should mobilize. So she created a program for alumni where you get perks at 70 arts organizations around town and every 10 days you're invited to a special arts event. Hmm. That's pretty cool. So Six, you've even 6, mobilized – you've mobilized people who weren't even at the school when you started the initiative. Exactly right. But, you know, the question is a googly question. It's a data question. It's mm-hmm. how much can your ticketing software talk to your donations software? How much does your software interact with the arts organ, Carnegie Hall's software? And what we all need to do is start talking to each other because the name of the game is collecting data and then targeting appropriate events back at the user. The other name of the game is if the initial data, even if anecdotal from what you've seen in the first five years, is successful, is there the opportunity to... uh, Roll it out? To, to proselytize for this on other campuses. Sure. There are 12, 15 universities with their own versions of arts initiatives now. Subsequent to your beginning this? Uh, yes. And I don't mean to suggest that they were all inspired by us, but we are now all talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And um, sure, the point is to create a model. If we did nothing but extend it beyond Columbia into the metropolitan area of New York City, we'd be talking about over half a million people, over a half a million college students in New York. I mean, a half a million would make it, you know, some sociologist will yell at me, but, you know, the 17th largest city in America. Hmm. So it's fantastic. It's just there's nothing better than waking up in the morning and thinking, how will we introduce more young people to the arts. Um, One staffer's only job is to be in touch with arts organizations around town and and get them to understand why this is in their own best interest. This is not charity. This is the name of the game. I gave a speech in November where just to push buttons, I said I wasn't sure there would be a Metropolitan Opera in 10 years or a New York Philharmonic or a City Ballet. And that arts organizations might well go the way of print journalism. Hmm. Not that the art is going to die any more than journalism is going to die. But what's the form going to be? And I pick, you know, I use the Met because Gelb is obviously in the forefront of finding new ways to connect with audiences. Hmm. Ironic that a guy who went to three different educational in higher educational institutions <laughs> and finished none of them because they weren't giving him what he wanted is now. Uh, at yes. one of the major institutions advocating for the arts. It's extraordinary. Well, it's a great a testament ironic. to Lee Bollinger, really, that, that, that he's a First Amendment scholar. But not like John Lindsay, this was just somehow in his blood, hmm. this idea that art matters. So to bring all of this conversation around to where we started, I have to assume, perhaps you'll tell me it's a false assumption, that in the 17 years between – View from the Bridge and your last Broadway production, there must have been a few offers. Sure. And 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 this is a 17-year break from directing on Broadway. Correct. I it's not like you were in London. Doing I directed mm-hmm. in Washington. I directed in Copenhagen. Okay. I produced Richard Nelson's, another one of my closest colleagues' plays. And I 
directed cryptogram mammoth play in London. So, but I was trying to stay away, to be honest. Hmm. I was trying not to work in the theater. But when Richard Nelson says, well, I have this idea of doing a musicalized version of James Joyce's The Dead, we, we didn't say no to somebody you've worked with for 20 years. It was mm -hmm. too good an idea to not do. Or John Leguizamo says, I have this play and it's called Freak. Well, just on the title alone, you have to do it. But I think you have to do these things because they're new and interesting. Everybody wanted to produce Freak off Broadway. Every producer in New York said, great, here's $600,000. You know, here's, here's $150,000. John's one-man show. I said, no, we're going to do them on Broadway. They said, there's no Latino audience on Broadway. I said, yeah, well, let's find out. They said, not happening. Hmm. Every producer in New York said, we'll do John off, not on. I went to Ariel Tepper and Bill Haber, now very established Broadway producers. It was their Broadway producing debut hmm. for each of them. And they did very well, I promise you, with Freak. So the obvious question with the great success of you from the bridge, which you initiated, are you now having the urge to initiate more theater productions? Do you want to be back directing more here in New York Absolutely. on Broadway? Absolutely. And the Arts Initiative is in a shape now where I don't need to tend it 80 hours a week, 51 weeks a year staff is extremely competent and there's finally a little momentum. It's not in danger of falling apart. So yes, I look forward very much to, to working in, in, in the theater more. And I, I missed it every day I was away from it. But I, you know this, you reach moments in your life, you just have to find out what's next. I was so lucky to, to have been hired by Bill Whitman when I was 25 and be running that and by the board when I was 27. And John Lindsay hired me when I was, I suppose, 36 years old. So I never had my 20s. I needed to have my 20s and my 40s somehow. And complete with suffering, I, I should add. I mean, it was, it was difficult financially. But it was always great. It was always great. And... I've never stopped loving the theater. The theater is the most extraordinary art form because it's the most complete art form, really. And I loved making the movies I made on the break and the television shows, and that was great. But the magic, the, the sense right now in the court theater of 1,079 people not breathing while they wait to see what Liev Schreiber is going to do next, literally not breathing, that's pretty remarkable. Um, and playwrights have an ability to reflect the culture back on itself, which God knows Miller spent his life trying to do. Um, it's very special, and I'm not a I'm not a luddite. I'm deeply engaged in in internet issues and web questions and the Googleizing of the world and user driven things and crowdsourcing, and I embrace them completely. I don't understand them very well because I'm too old. But um, it's like Chinese to me. All day long, I feel like I'm listening to people speaking Chinese because they're talking about the this and the that. And that. But, but I read a lot about it and I work with young people mostly. So I'm for that. But when you strip all that away, and as Brooke would say, an actor stands on an empty stage, then, then a moment of theater is begun. And that community, as great as the online community is, that community, whether it's 100 people in a rehearsal room 
slash theater, whether it's in a glorious Broadway theater like the court, it's irreplaceable. I, I, it just got me young, and it's never left me. And I feel it more strongly than I've ever felt it. And the break was good for that. It really was. It made me realize I wasn't doing it out of habit, but out of a, whether I'm good at it or not, um, a kind of somewhere deep inside me thing that loves that moment. Not the moment of the applause, although that's great. It's the moment of, I don't know what's going to happen next. It's primal. It's in our DNA, wanting to hear stories. Well, we will look forward to what happens next for you. And I want to say, Greg Mosier, thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. A great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded at the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow The Wing on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.